you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, we are here by grace and we need to hear by grace. Grant us ears to hear afresh who you are and what you require of us and what you offer to us. Father, have your way with us through your spirit and your word as we sit here amidst your people. Christ, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, today, as you can tell, we are gathered solemnly to hear the word of the Lord through the voice of his prophets, specifically the voices of Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, as they show us a God not of our own making, a side of God that we often choose to ignore. As you read this week in your preparation for worship, Millard Erickson says, the major emphasis in many worship services today is on the qualities of God that are reassuring rather than disturbing to his worshipers. Primarily, it's the power of God, his mighty works, his loftiness, and so on, which are sung about. His holiness, his wrath, his judgment, and the like are stretched, stressed much less. Consequently, expressions of guilt, repentance, remorse, and confession are largely absent from our worship services. Today, as you have experienced in recent weeks, the minor prophets bring to us that missing balance, that silence about those attributes of God they bring to us in ways that we cannot, dare not ignore. I want you to just listen. Listen to the portrait of God that comes to us from the prophet Nahum. It's an oracle concerning the city of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are shattered before him. He continues in the third chapter of his book, speaking about God's judgments. Woe to the city of blood, which is Nineveh, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, Charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslave nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. 
I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? The message of the prophet Nahum is directed against one nation, primarily Assyria, a nation that had taken God's people, Israel, captive some 60-plus years before this writing. His message is targeted against one particular city, the capital city of that great nation, Assyria, Nineveh. And Nineveh should sound familiar to you. If you were here last week, it's the city that Jonah was sent to. A city where he reluctantly proclaimed, in the simplest of words, a message of judgment upon that city, only to have the entire city of 120,000 plus turn everyone from their sin. You remember it in Jonah chapter 3 where the great king of Nineveh says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, he did have compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But it's barely a generation later and Nineveh has turned against God's people. And now a generation, merely a generation after that, and Nahum is pronouncing this indictment of absolute judgment upon Nineveh. There's no offer of repentance in the prophet's words. Only a sure message of destruction. But the message is actually delivered to God's people to give them hope of God's justice and God's deliverance. Listen again from the first chapter. He says to them, the Lord is good, a refuge for you in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. And so the prophet Nahum lets God's people know that God's judgment is coming upon Nineveh, which if the Ninevites caught word of it, I can only imagine that they would have scoffed at it. See, Nineveh is a very different uh, kind of city. It was reported to be the greatest city on earth. Um, It had around it uh, walls 100 feet tall that were so wide you could drive three chariots abreast atop those walls. 100-foot towers above the walls also surrounded the city. And outside of the wall was a 150-foot wide moat, 60 feet in depth in depth, and the city was prepared to withstand a 20-year siege. It was virtually impregnable. But later on, as the city began a bit of decline, as future rulers took over, um, God fulfilled his word. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 8, it indicates that a flood would destroy the city, and that's exactly what happened. There was a great flood of the Tigris River that eroded part of the wall, and the Babylonians came through that breach and overthrew the city and destroyed it. And chapter 3 prophesied that the city would be hidden, 
and the ruins of Nineveh were not found until the year 18, 1800 and some, 1842, I believe. God's word had come true concerning Nineveh. The city had fallen in judgment. God's people experienced his mercy. This is always the hope of the people of God. In the book of Romans, we're urged not to take revenge, my friends, but instead leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So sure is our hope in the just judgment of God that we're free to love our enemies. We don't have to judge them. We can entrust that to God. And so God brought this message of judgment to his people to encourage them of the justice that awaited their enemies. But the Ninevites have a message for us as well. You know, it's a city amazingly, miraculously brought to repentance. A city that was shown so much grace. Now it's fallen so far from God. Just from one generation to the next, it all changed. There's a book uh, written by Ian Bradley on the history of Christianity in the British Isles. And he writes as part of that about um, what we know as the BBC The British Broadcasting Company. Most of you have heard it and are very familiar with it. Um, But when it was founded in the early 1920s, what most of us don't know is that the BBC had a distinctively Christian vision that gave birth to it. Visitors to the broadcasting house in London can still get a sense of that if they read the inscription from the entrance hall. It says this, The temple of the arts and muses is dedicated to Almighty God. It is our prayer that good seed sown may bring forth a good harvest. It's language dripping with scripture. That all things hostile to peace or purity may be banished from this house. And that the people, including their ears to what, inclining their ears to whatsoever things are beautiful and honest and of good report, may tread the paths of wisdom and righteousness. He says that the BBC acted almost like a church in its early days. Um, creating highly popular devotional programs like the daily service and lift up your hearts. But the BBC began to depart from its Christian roots in years later. Still in 1948, Sir William Haley, who was the head of the BBC, could be heard to say, we are citizens of a Christian country and the BBC, an institution set up by the state, bases its policy upon a positive attitude towards the Christian values. It seeks to safeguard those Christian values and to foster acceptance of them. The whole preponderant weight of its program is directed at this end. But 25 years later, in the early 70s, Sir Charles Curran talked rather of the moral neutrality of broadcasting in a post-Christian era. He said, it's not our job to adopt a particular morality and then to try to persuade everybody else to follow it. And from one generation to the next... The vision has been lost. How important it is for moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas to pass on their faith to their children and their grandchildren. 
how important it is that fathers put down the remote and set aside the newspaper and read the great stories of the faith to their children. How important is it that moms and dads, when they tuck in their children at night, they pray the blessing of God over them? How important is it that when you're gathered as family, that stories are told of God's faithfulness and goodness to you and to your family? You don't have to have a PhD to read these kinds of stories and tell these kinds of stories with your children. Two significant Stephanies in my life have recommended this book to me, my wife and our children's director. It's called The Jesus Storybook Bible. Every story whispers his name, and it shows our children where Christ is in the stories throughout the Bible. You should read this to your children, your preschool and early elementary children. How important it is. We see in the lives of the Ninevites that we guard our faith and that we pass it on. But it's a warning to us personally, too, not to be complacent in our faith. We, too, can fall quickly from a place of grace. Listen to the warnings of the Scripture for us. If you think you're standing firm, be careful so that you don't fall. And again, we know him who said, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This morning, can you sense that things are not right between you and God? Can you sense that they are not as they once were? That you've grown cold? Maybe lukewarm. Are there things that you're hiding? Are there secrets you're keeping? I cannot urge you strong enough to deal with those matters today at the invitation of God, at the kindness of God that would lead you to repentance this morning, in this very room. Listen again from the closing book of the Bible. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, the Lord says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, says the Lord. To buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent, says the Lord. See, what brought God's judgment upon his people most severely was when they heard the call of the prophets and did nothing, changed nothing. Just listened and said, well, that's interesting, and did nothing. Our prophets are all from the 7th century before Christ, these three. 
And God's own people at that time were far from him, committing great injustices. And our second prophet is confused by this. Habakkuk is confused to the point of distress. He doesn't understand what God is doing. Or better, he doesn't understand what God is not doing. He says in his book, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, Violence! but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Essentially, he's asking the same question that Jeremiah asked. Jeremiah put it this way. You're always righteous, Lord. When I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Habakkuk's question essentially could be phrased this way. Where are you, God? Where are you? Why have you not intervened? And God answers his question in the next few verses in the first chapter of Habakkuk. He says, Habakkuk, look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places, places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dust. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like the sand. God is going to raise up the Babylonians to judge his own people for their sin. And this creates another problem for Habakkuk because the Babylonians are worse than his own people he was complaining about. It raises a second question for him. Habakkuk essentially says, How could you, God? He says, O Lord, you've appointed them, the Babylonians, to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You you cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous, these Babylonians? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? How could you, God? And again, God answers. What he tells Habakkuk is that when he is finished with the Babylonians, they too will be judged justly. And there is, in the second chapter, there are a series of woes that are pronounced upon the Babylonians. Here's one, just as an example. Woe to him, to those Babylonians who give drink to their neighbors, pouring it from the wineskins till they are drunk so he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn, Babylon. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. 
God will judge justly. And he tells Habakkuk, it's a sure thing. And we need to, as the people did then, live in faith that God will fulfill his word. The Lord replied to Habakkuk, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he's puffed up, the Babylonians. Their desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. You know, there are times more often than we wish when things don't make sense to us. Usually that's when we suffer. And especially when we suffer um, unjustly. During those times, the lessons that God gives to Habakkuk are recorded for us. And the first of those lessons is simply this. God is beyond our figuring out. Our little three and a half pounds of brain just can't figure him out. That's the sense you get from the New Testament where it says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. You know, as as far as I know, the most powerful computer in the world is currently the IBM Blue Gene L. It's housed at Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California. It can perform... 280 trillion calculations a second. Um, But that pales compared to a new computer they're trying to develop out at Los Alamos at the National Lab there. It's called the Roadrunner Project. And when they're done with it, this year ostensibly, the computer will fill the room the size of a hockey rink and consume as much power as a small town. The goal is to be the first computer to break the petaflop barrier. That is to do a quadrillion calculations a second. How fast is that? That would be a billion times faster than your laptop. They use it to simulate the first few uh, seconds of a nuclear detonation so they can test their bombs without setting them off. But what's more stunning than this is that the human brain processes information even faster, ten times faster. Some scientists estimate that your brain carries out ten quadrillion operations a second, ten times faster than the computer the size of a hockey ring. Your brain, 10 quadrillion operations a second. And Isaiah says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, declares the Lord. As the heavens are above the earth, so his thoughts are above ours. God is at some level simply beyond our figuring out. 
He is incomprehensible unless he reveals himself to us. And that's why this book is so precious to us. It's how we understand God because he has revealed himself to us. So God is beyond our figuring out. But he is also always at work, Habakkuk learns. Always setting the stage for his plan to be unveiled and enacted. See, when Habakkuk can only see inactivity on God's part, God is at work behind the scenes, raising up the Babylonians. Habakkuk had no idea until God told him. When Habakkuk can only see injustice because of people such as the Babylonians are going to be used by God, God is readying the Babylonians for their own judgment. Habakkuk had no idea until God told him. See, when we cannot see God at work or cannot make sense out of what we do see that he's doing, when marriages are violated and business partnerships are betrayed, when cancer strikes and pregnancies end in death and not the celebration of life we so long for, when engagements are broken or never even started, during these inexplicably dark times, we need to know that God is at work in inexplicable ways, ways that are beyond us, ways that we cannot see and we cannot comprehend fully. Habakkuk says we need to live by faith. The righteous will live by faith in those times. And Habakkuk closes the beautiful third chapter of his book with these words of hope born of faith. Listen closely to them. He says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, he's saying, though we might starve due to lack of food, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights, he says. The imagery is of the hardest of times and the steadiest of faith. And so Habakkuk challenges us. Will you trust God when you cannot see that he is at work? Will you trust that he is behind the scenes? Will you trust that when you cannot understand what God is doing, that he is still just and he is still good? Will you trust? Will you live by faith? That's what Habakkuk asks us today. Our third prophet today, and our last one, brings a sobering warning concerning the great day of the Lord, the great day of God's judgment. Zephaniah says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah is this. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. 
That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. It's a sobering message, but perhaps the most sobering thing about it is that he says repeatedly, this day's near. He says in the first chapter, the seventh verse, be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. It's been prepared. In the 14th verse, he says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, it's coming. It's near. Jesus spoke of the nearness of that day when he called us to readiness in light of it arriving unexpectedly. Jesus said, you must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. James put it this way. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. He's near. We read these sober warnings and we wonder sometimes, how can that be? How 600 plus years before Christ can the day of the Lord be near? And then during the, during the time of Christ, can the day of the Lord be near? And then now, can the day of the Lord be near? Weren't, weren't they wrong? Um, well, on the one hand, the day of the Lord seems to come in installments in one sense in history. Back in their time, there was a judgment coming through the through the Babylonians, and it did come shortly. It was near at the time of these prophecies, and it came soon upon God's people. But they were looking on past that to another, a greater day that was also coming. I suppose you could say, on the one hand, uh, judgment for us, justice for us, is as near as death. And in that sense, it's, it's nearer than we think. But I think the expressions concerning the nearness of the day of the Lord seem to imply a readiness on God's part to bring his judgment suddenly and unexpectedly. It's like the stage is set and all that awaits is for God to pull apart the curtains and let the drama unfold. It is near in the sense that God has readied himself and it will come unexpectedly. And Jesus urges us, be ready. He sounds like one of the prophets when he says this. He says, keep watch because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. 
But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are you ready for that day? It will come when you least expect it, Jesus says. Zephaniah says, if you're complacent about your faith, he says, you're not ready. In the first chapter, Zephaniah says, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses but not live in them. They will plant vineyards but not drink the wine. He warns that if you're unfaithful, if you're not wholehearted in your love and service to your king, you're not ready. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I'll cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, a false god. The names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also swear by Molech, another false god. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Are your days marked by seeking the Lord and inquiring of him? Is your worship of him alone? Or are you seeking your great pleasures from other lesser gods too? Zephaniah warns us that we are not ready if complacency and unfaithfulness mark our days. God is on a mission to rescue worshipers from all peoples. On the day that he comes, will you be aligned with his great purposes and his compassionate heart, extending the grace, the hard grace of the prophets and of Jesus to all peoples, to your neighbors? Will they have heard from you? Listen to what Zephaniah says. He says, seek the Lord. All you humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and share in his great heart. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the land. The nations on every shore will worship him. Everyone in its own land. God's passion is for all peoples to rescue them. His love is for us all. He would rescue us. On the day that he comes, will you be found in it? Will you taste that love? Will you, will you be experiencing it? Listen to how Zephaniah closes his book with his beautiful statement. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He'll take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he'll rejoice over you with singing. Imagine that kind of love. That God will rejoice over you 
was singing. The story unfolds and the mission of God happens in the life of his son. And it says this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Are you ready? Will you be found in the love of God? Will you be found sharing his compassion for all peoples, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, for your family? On the day of the Lord that will come upon us unexpectedly. May God have mercy upon us as we respond to the reading and hearing of his word. Bow with me in prayer, please. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, have mercy upon us. Show your kindness to us today and ready us for that great unexpected day of your coming. That we might not be found suffering your judgment, but bathed in your mercy, having tasted of your love because we have drawn near to the cross and trusted the one who died there to bear our sins. May we be found ready, faithful, not complacent, not tolerating pockets of sin, secret ones. Father, in mercy this day, bring freedom to us through your great work on the cross by your spirit as he speaks to us and prompts us and convicts us now in response to your word, in the middle of your people, all of grace. We worship you. 